0: Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In the summer of 1873, a vicar in Lincolnshire, the Reverend Frank Besant, issued an ultimatum to his wife. She must either take Holy Communion regularly at his church or leave him. His wife, who had begun to doubt her Christian faith, later wrote, "'Hypocrisy or expulsion? I chose the latter.' The woman's name was Annie Besant, and she went on to become one of the most prominent social reformers of the late 19th century. The causes she fought for included not only secularism and women's rights, but also freedom of speech, socialism, Irish home rule, and better conditions for workers. She spearheaded the celebrated strike by matchgirls at the Bryant and May factory in Bow, East London, in 1888, and was put on trial for obscenity for daring to publish a pamphlet on birth control. About midway through life, she became a theosophist and moved to India, establishing herself as a leading figure in the nationalist movement there and being appointed the first woman president of the Indian National Congress in 1917. With me to discuss the life and work of Annie Besant are Lawrence Goldman, fellow in modern history at St. Peter's College, University of Oxford. David Stack, Reader in History at the University of Reading. And Yasmin Khan, Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at Royal Holloway University of London. Lawrence Goldman, Annie Besant, who was born, Annie Wood, in 1847 in London. Can you give us some idea of her family?
1: Yes. Uh, her parents, in fact, were Irish. Her father was William Wood. Her mother was uh, Ellen Morris. They'd met in Dublin and married there. They came over in 1845 to London at the time of the famine, and her father, in fact, was an underwriter uh, working in the city of London. Um, Wood, William Wood, was actually from a very notable family, and Annie had very notable relations. One of her uh, Wood relations had been the Lord Mayor of London, an MP, a successful merchant. Another of her relations William Pagewood uh, became Lord Chancellor in Gladstone's first administration as Baron Hatherley, a, a notable liberal reforming Lord Chancellor. Uh, she even had another Wood relation, uh, Kitty, Catherine Wood, uh, who was very notable as the second wife of Charles Stuart Parnell, the Irish nationalist, uh, and the cause of some scandal uh, when there were divorce proceedings uh, from her first husband. So she came from uh, a talented family background. Many of the woods uh, had reached uh, positions of note in British society uh, and I think that showed really in the way she formed her own life.
0: But then her father died of TB when she was five and her mother decided instead of taking charity to take over a boy's boarding house up in Harrow at the Harrow School and this was deemed unsuitable finally so she was as it were farmed out to this woman uh, Ellen Marriott in Dorset, sister yes. of the famous writer yes. a wealthy woman who, edu- who herself educated Annie until the age of 16.
1: Absolutely, um, farmed out sounds a bit tough actually but in fact I mean it was probably uh, the best thing that happened to Annie. Ellen Marriott was a spinster, as you say she was the sister of, uh, of a famous boy's author. Captain Marriott had been a Royal Naval officer in the Napoleonic Wars and then wrote some children's literature, very famous children's literature in the Victorian period. Um, his His sister was a a, a notable woman herself, uh, well educated and she took in young girls uh, like Annie and others uh, to educate them from respectable families. So Annie went down to Charmouth in Dorset leaving Harrow um, and for the next uh, six or seven years down there she was a pupil of Ellen Marriott um, and she had a very fine education Latin, modern languages, history geography and she was taught uh, as it were to research for herself Uh, She was taught to be curious. Uh, She became a fine stylist in English, of course. Uh, Her languages were perfected through trips to Germany and to Paris. Um, And by 16, Ellen Marriott uh, had to report that there was nothing more that she could actually teach this uh, young lady. Um, And she came back to Harrow at that point.
0: There was another example that this this lady offered her, which was of uh, philanthropy and, and helping people.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, Miss Marriott was uh, a strict evangelical. There wasn't much reading of novels and plays for uh, divertisma in, uh, in, in her academy, as it were. Um, but she had a very strong social conscience and she taught her girls to care for the poor locally, uh, in the area and so forth. And this was another of those themes that you find early on in Annie's life.
0: Just extraordinary how well-educated she was by 16, after only seven years there. But, David Stack, she, can you talk a bit about her uninvestance uh, religion, which, and you would she was at that stage, but still, let's call her It's a lot easier, and because it was a big factor throughout her life, for, against, in different What was her religion when she left Miss Marriott's school?
2: I think the first thing to say is, when she leaves Miss Marriott's school at the age of 16 and a half, given what comes afterwards, the important thing to note is that she's completely unaware of the world of politics, and she is, as you say, deeply religious. And until the Easter of 1866, really, when she meets her husband, Frank Besant. She can I um, just
0: talk... Can you tell us what religion... Yeah. There are so many different... No, I was coming to that, yeah. Right, fine.
2: Okay. Oh, okay. I mean, her life is of, of, of um, pleasant contentment. The religion she imbibes from, from Marriott is a, an evangelical devotion to truth and duty, which becomes the defining features of, a, of her life throughout. What she doesn't take from from Marriott is that she becomes interested in um, aspects of Catholicism, particularly during a trip to to Paris with Marriott. She is, as she puts it herself, made of the very stuff that fanatics are made of. At this stage, she is imbibed this evangelical notion. She put it from herself Mariette, in her autobiography. In her autobiography, mm. yes, later on in her life. But by 1866, 1867, two things are happening in Besson's life. Firstly, she has the first um, notions of doubt come upon her. In the Easter of 1866, she is following the Gospels through the Easter period, and this leads her to do something which is quite characteristic of Victorians interested in religious matters, which is to sit down and compare and contrast the four Gospels. Now, at this point, she finds inconsistencies, but she's reconciled to them but a seed of religious doubt has been sown quite early on. The second thing which happens in this period is in 1867 when she's staying with William Roberts, who's a a family friend in Manchester. And this dear old man, as she calls him, is her first tutor in radicalism. She's staying with Roberts in 1867 at the time of the famous smashing of the van incident in which two Fenian prisoners are um, taken out of a, a prison van and a police constable killed and then five members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood are put on trial, and three of them are hanged outside Salford Jail. And this has a deep effect upon Besant, who, his background is Irish, and although her own upbringing is very English, identifies herself with the Irish cause.
0: And nevertheless, having had that radical taste of radicalism, mm-hmm. which obviously tastes much to her taste, yes. she marries a strict uh, clergyman, on, assumes, on the advice of her mother, someone she met in Clapham, and she's only 20, he's about 25, 26, mm-hmm. something.
2: Uh, and, I think he's seven years old, or
0: something like that. Yeah. So,
2: what happens there? Well, they meet. In East, at Easter 1866, at this time when she's having the first doubts, they meet, as you say, in the Clapper Mission Church, where Frank Bessant, the son of a wine merchant just down from Cambridge, is the new deacon, and Annie and an aunt go to arrange flowers. They then spend um, some time together when a group from the church go on a holiday, and having spent time together, she's startled to find that Frank proposes to her. And she's slightly offended by this as well, because if, if she thinks it implies that she's been flirting. Um, and then they drift, as she puts it, into an engagement, or she drifts into an engagement with a man that she makes no pretence to love. And they marry, nevertheless. They marry, yes. And and she, what, she,
0: let, let's sorry. cut to the chase here because I've got a lot to talk about her life. They marry, uh, and they have two children. She seems to be disillusioned with him from very early on. And then there's this case of principle he brings up. If she's, he goes to Lincolnshire. If she's going to stay with him, she has to take Holy Communion, and she refuses. That was quite must have been quite a thing.
2: Well, a case of principle. Except a year later, she does take Holy Communion with her mother when her mother's on her deathbed. But not for him. But not for him. No. What Annie says about the marriage is that they were unsuitable from the start. She says they were an ill-matched pair and should never have been married for a number of reasons. One, that he is very much of the master in his own house, in theory, and she has this sense of independence, which she's learned from Marriott. He also treats her harshly, possibly violently, and she's never been treated harshly either by Miss Marriott or by her mother. And so she responds initially with incredulity and then with defiance. She also marries, it must be said, in perfect innocence, as she puts it, of the marriage relation. She says she knows no more about the marriage relation than if she'd been aged four rather than aged 20. And the other factor, as you say, building on this, is this loss of faith, which she experiences. Part of the reason that she ends up marrying Frank Besant is because of her deep religiosity, which leads her to... Identify rec- rec- her devotion, her sense of romance, her sub- sublimated sexuality—perhaps—is all concentrated on the figure of Christ, and as—and as a later. Um, a later associate of hers puts it, uh, and she was unable to be bride of heaven, so she ended up being the bride of Frank Besant, and he was far from an adequate substitute.
0: But she's already worried about Christ, because she's met this chap, Voise, who mm. has said that uh, Christ is not divine, yeah. there are no miracles, yeah. he is a spiritual man, yeah. and she takes that on board almost completely and writes her own pamphlet about it, saying these things.
2: She does i mean there's a she she does but in eighteen seventy two she writes a pamphlet on questioning the divinity of Christ, but there's also a, a personal incident involved in this as well I mean partly there's the breakdown of relations with Frank, but there's also the illness of her daughter Mabel in eighteen seventy one who suffers a severe bout of whooping cough, and it looks like she's on the point of death for a long time and Annie comes out of this really questioning her religious commitment, questioning the notion of of how you can reconcile evil in the universe with a good and loving God and questioning notions of eternal damnation, atonement, revelation, your fundamental building blocks of Christianity.
0: Another um, Yasmin Khan, she's met um, William Roberts, radical, and been influenced by him. She's encountered uh, Boise and she's influenced by him. The next person, uh, after she's left her husband, she comes to London and with one of the children. The other, he, he keeps the boy, she takes the girl. Um, she, may, she meets Charles Bradlaugh, president of the National Secular Society. Uh, uh, and can you tell us a bit about him and wh- why and how he influenced her?
3: Charles Bradlaugh is enormously important to Annie Besant. He's perhaps the most important relationship that she has in, in her life. He's a mentor, a friend, an ally over the next twenty years until his, his death. She comes to London and she's in really rather a precarious situation now. She's she's left her husband. She's maintaining a household. Her mother is sick and, and dying and she's taking shelter in the British Museum reading room. And one day on the on a bus on the way to Victoria, she's she picks up a copy of a newspaper, The National Reformer, which is Charles Bradlaugh's newspaper which promotes atheism and she is struck by the by the newspaper by what she reads and she arranges a meeting with Bradlaugh she goes and sees him and he instantly recognizes her talents as a speaker as a publicist and is the most influential person in in turning Annie Besant away perhaps from the skepticism about religion to fully fledged atheism and free thought which at the time is is in, very very scandalous um, he is feared throughout, throughout Britain to some extent uh, and he's already famous for being the most prominent atheist in British society at that, at that time so by linking together with Bradlow she has a whole new platform for disseminating ideas
0: we must tell listeners that he was elected mp for northampton well, mm-hmm. four times but not allowed to take his seat because he refused to swear the oath of northampton people stuck to him but he refused to swear the oath he wanted to affirm it and they wouldn't let him affirm it that didn't come in until 20 years later so that itself was a huge scandal but
3: he's a remarkable person because he's self-educated almost from the age of from the age of 12 uh, he he grew up in the east end of london the son of a clerk at, at, at a dock workers and he is um, co- so committed to his cause that even though he would love to take his seat as an MP, he sticks to this position and uh, that actually generates a lot of popularity for him among working class population of, of, of Northampton who, uh, who stick to him over those years and he does eventually take his, his seat as an MP. So
0: he took her under his wing and there were rumours about this, that and the other but let's just talk about the way he mentored her as a public speaker and as a writer for instance. She became an extremely effective public speaker.
3: Yes, one of the telling anecdotes in Annie Bessant's autobiography is she says back when she was in the parish in Sibsey in Lincolnshire and still married she took to the pulpit of the church when it was empty and practiced public speaking and she mentions how she was struck by the power and delight of her voice and and I think this says a lot about her because really she she builds a following through her abilities in public speaking and of course at this time there's no radio there's no no other media that can uh, work as effectively as the lecture hall. And lectures get notices, they get reviews. So she becomes a famous public speaker. Beatrice Webb says, for instance, that she has the voice of a beautiful soul. And she's able to convey uh, her cause very effectively. And Bradley mentors her in that as well. Of
0: what cause, what is she speaking about?
3: Well, she's speaking about um, the fact that she, the Christian church is power in the state, the fact that she doesn't believe that uh, God um, exists and that uh, other religions are all spurious, state-created. So she's Um, basically
0: putting the National Secularist Society case. She's putting the National Secularist
3: Society case, but the National Secularist Society is also connected to a, a whole network of other radical movements who are interested in other issues. And there's a there's an, a scene in london which she's part of so it they they link up with other criticisms of of of, of policies uh, around the world including um irish interests and uh home rule for ireland of course becomes a big cause uh, including criticism of imperial actions by the by by britain overseas so it's a it, it's a world where for her Atheism is central, but these other causes are connected to it.
0: It could be said so that, in, in one way, the Irish, her, her Irishness, which she was very proud of, and her, her interest in her convictions about Irish politics, was, was part of the making of her as well.
3: Absolutely. She's very proud of being Irish. She says so her blood is three quarters Irish, but her heart is 100% Irish. And she she uh, has almost a romantic vision of ireland she didn't actually go there until later in life but she sees it as a as a as a place where um where real justice can occur and and a cause that 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 she's obliged to to fight for within within britain and of course later much later on when she gets involved in indian politics there's a lot of parallels between irish home rule and the indian home rule that she she begins yes, to demand. Yes, you
0: could exchange, interchange the phrases mm. used between Ireland and India. Ron Scobell. He has been referred to. Although she's in the National Secular Society, though a lot of these organisations um, interconnect with their cousinships and brotherhoods, as it were, with other societies. Can you give us some idea of the the way this this reforming movements were going in the last third of the nineteenth century?
1: Yes, well, in the 1870s, when she comes to London and makes contact with secularists and atheists, um, one needs to note that these are not yet socialists. She will become, later on in the 1880s, a socialist herself and associate with socialists. But these tend to be radical individualists, uh, often radical liberals in their politics, um, concerned about matters of church and state, often rather more than they're concerned about social equity, uh, class struggle and so forth. That's to be, if you like, a later phase in her career. To understand uh, uh, secularism, you have to understand a kind of spectrum, really. There are people who are just beginning to doubt uh, Christian revelation, they're beginning to doubt aspects of Christian orthodoxy, like, for example, the Reverend Charles Voisey, who's one of her first contacts in London, who's been deprived of his parish because uh, he simply doesn't believe any longer in central Christian doctrine. Um, But there's also, at the other end of the spectrum, people like Bradlaugh and even more militant figures who are militant atheists and materialists who reject the whole idea of a deity and a spiritual world. And um, she, as it were comes to rest at several different points she knows many of the key figures in London uh, but it's not uh, well for example she meets uh, Moncour Daniel Conway uh, a notable American who comes to Britain during the Civil War he's a minister in Virginia he comes to uh, London Uh, he becomes the um, uh, voice really of the South Place Chapel and the founder of the South Place Ethical Societies and Ethical Societies spring up over London and in other places as well, where people who we might call vaguely humanist come together, uh, and what they're doing, if you like, is transferring their allegiance from God to man. Often these are people very interested in social reform, uh, and as Beatrice Webb once put it, I mean, what characterises this age is the transference of the kind of relationship that people hitherto had with the deity to their relationship with their fellow men and women.
0: David Stack, um, she came to even more prominence. It's quite interesting to see this woman coming out of this little school in Dorset, uh, almost a sort of development of a dame school, really, and then suddenly being in secular pulpits all around the country. We just have to take... Obviously, for granted, because obviously she, she gained enormous reputation, but it's, it takes some thinking about it. But she and Bradlaugh, and Yasmin's explained how close they were together for how long, became involved in a public debate about birth control, yes. which got them into a lot
2: of trouble with the state. Can you tell us something about that? In a sense, it's a, it's a public debate about freedom of information and, and liberty as much as it is about birth control because it it comes about because of the prosecution under the Obscene Publications Act of two publishers for publishing a leaflet, um, a pamphlet, Charles Knowlton's for Fruits of Philosophy, promoting the birth control cause. Birth control propaganda had continued more or less unchallenged for around 50 years up until the mid-1870s. The first attempts at birth control propaganda in Britain occurred in the 1820s. Firstly, When you say birth control propaganda, you mean propaganda for birth control? Propaganda for birth That's control, right. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, whole, the whole debate about population changes its nature at the end of the 18th century when Thomas Robert Malthus writes his essay on the principle of population. And from that moment on, the notion that there might be a need to restrain population growth takes off. Malthus himself stops at the notion of moral restraint, the idea that people marry late and are strictly moral up until a point at which they marry, but others are not so shy. And so in the 1820s, a number of radicals, such as Francis Place, the radical tailor of Charing Cross, and more pertinently for us, I think, Richard Carlyle, begin to put out pamphlets arguing the case for birth control. And Carlyle is particularly interesting because his pamphlet, What is Love, which he publishes in 1826, makes a radical case for birth control, which also embraces elements of notions of free love, female sexual pleasure, and an attack on the church. And there's a direct connection here with Bradlaugh and Besant because, as a young man, Bradlaugh lodges with um, Carlyle's widow, Eliza Sharples, and also falls in love with Carlyle's eldest daughter, Hypatia. And Bradlaugh is interested in birth control thereafter. In 1861, he attempts to found a Malfusian League, but it's very difficult to, to drum up any interest Can we point. go back
0: to Bradlaugh and Besset, yeah. then, what they
2: did? So what happens is, in the winter of 1876-1877, two publishers, firstly Henry Cook in Bristol and Wren, the publisher of most of Bradlaw's publications, um, in in London, are charged under the Obscene Publications Act with publishing Charles Knowlton's Fruits of Philosophy, another one of these pamphlets advocating birth control. And this is the first time that the state have used the law to try to limit um, the spread of knowledge about birth control. And so
0: where do Bradlaugh and Besson come into it?
2: Well, at this point, when Charles Watts, their publisher, pleads guilty... Um, Cook has been sentenced to two years' hard labour. Yeah. So when their publisher pleads guilty, they think at this point, where well, they want this kind of information to circulate and that this is really an attack on the secular movement. So what Bradlaugh and Besant do is they form the Free Fault Publishing Company, print another copy of Charles Knowlton's pamphlet, march down to the chief clerk at the Guildhall, put it in front of him and say, this is what we're going to publish, please arrest us. And... They're arrested and they're charged with publishing a certain lewd, baldy and obscene publication in March 1877. And then they can you just take us through, they're arrested and they're tried? They're tried in June 1877 and one thing that's worth saying is that in the interim, sales of Charles Knowlton's Fruits of Philosophy take off. Uh, it's, it's estimated by one historian, and figures are very difficult, to, of course, to estimate, but it's estimated by one historian that 125,000 copies of his pamphlet are So what happens when they're
0: arrest- after they're arrested and tried, then what?
2: They're arrested, they're tried. The trial itself, which lasts four days, is a major public event. It cr- throws up problems of propriety. The Times reports this as the Queen versus Bradlaugh and another, because they don't want to put Besant's name in as a woman. Besant and Bradlaugh defend themselves. Bradlaw's case is based around the notion of liberty and freedom of information. Besant's case is based around poverty and the need to end poverty through restricting the number of births.
0: As I understand it, the, 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 the court fines against them, but they don't go to prison.
2: The verdict which the jury b- brings in is not simply a, a guilty or not guilty. It, it, they find that the publication is indecent and obscene under the terms of the Act, but they say that Bradlaugh and Besant have no impure motives. The judge interprets this as a guilty verdict. Can
0: I go to you, then, Yasmin? What, um, can you, what effect did this have on Annie Besant in her life and in her views, given that this was, as, as uh, David said, this was a real push to the forefront of, of the news, the national news. She was, she was the national news for a while with, with Bradlow of course.
3: Personally at first there's a sense of elation because they have managed to put this on the front page of the newspapers, they haven't gone to prison as many of their friends warned she was warned off this by many many people who were otherwise sympathetic to her because they said look you're, you're going to put your name in such disrepute uh, you're, you're going to be a woman uh, as marked woman but she, she manages to pull it off, she defends herself extremely well in the court case and is um, articulates all her reasons for being in favour of birth control so although those ways it's a success however personally for her afterwards um, there's a there's a tragedy because up until this point her young daughter Mabel has been living with her child custody arrangements in the case of separation had been altered slightly um, by this time and, and a woman could could take custody of a, of a young child but Frank Sibsey sitting up in uh, Frank Frank her husband Bessant sitting up in Sibsey the parish in Lincolnshire is not Pleased to have his name being brought into disrepute in this way, in, and and Annie Besant all over the newspapers, and he sees this as his time to take some revenge for the uh, for the shame that she's brought upon him, and she he goes about trying to take back custody of of, of Mabel, the young daughter who's who's only seven years old, and he's successful in in that. Um, he wins his case on the grounds that Annie Besant has been removing Mabel from religious education at school, um, and. Uh, on the grounds that she's giving the the young girl atheistic uh, treatment, and and after that she's she's removed, and Annie Besant doesn't live with her child again until she's seventeen years old. And in the interim, Mabel is sent to a boarding school and back to the to the parish, and has a rather miserable uh, childhood. So, it personally, that sends Besant into what could now be described as a nervous breakdown. She's she's thoroughly depressed and. So it's a very mixed outcome from the Knowlton trial.
0: But one thing Laurence Goldman does is that she moves uh, into, increasingly drawn into socialism, mm-hmm. which at that time was not in certain areas all that far removed from religion. Yeah. Uh, I mean a little later Keir Hardy said I learnt more from Jesus of Nazareth than from yes. any socialist writings mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. So she's still holding on to that because it's important mm-hmm. when we come to theosophy. She's not letting but she's moving into socialism. Uh, and Darwinism has come in. Sorry to throw all this at you, but there yes. you go. Well I, I And think... and can you just take us into that? I mean yes. I'm trying to head for
1: Bloody Sunday. Right, okay. Well I mean I think we, we can capture this in a phrase that historians use, the religion of early socialism. Mm. Um, and if for many people who turn to socialism in what's known as the socialist revival in the 1880s, the foundations of the Fabian Society, the Social Democratic Federation in London, which is the first Marxist organisation and a range of other organisations uh, from the early 1880s. For many people um, who come into socialism, actually it is a kind of surrogate for religion. Many are nonconformists. Many are moving away from their churches. Many are looking for a new kind of brotherhood to take the place of religious fervor and religious belief. Um, and in many ways, what happens after the trial in regard to birth control is a, a natural movement into socialism. This is where many of those kind of secularists are moving in the 1880s. And she, she, and she follows that path.
0: But she doesn't only really follow it. And yet again, as with birth control, she goes to the front of it. I mean, she is one of, leading with George Bernard Shaw, one of the four columns, marching on Trafalgar Square. Mm-hmm. A lot of radicals are going to meet there, but the state, the country, says no and won't let them in. Mm-hmm. And there's a violent clash. Three people are killed. Bloody Sunday, she's there. Mm-hmm. They won't arrest her, although she wants to be arrested. She wants to be arrested, that's right. I
1: mean, Bloody Sunday is the sort of great set piece of the 1880s. It's the great set piece in the capital between socialists and radicals and the forces of establishment and order. And it links together so many of the issues that that Besant has held as her own ostensibly it's about coercion in Ireland, government policies uh, reducing civil liberties in Ireland and of course as we've said that's one of the crucial things in her makeup. it's also about economic deprivation and class conflict in the capital which has grown across the 1880s poverty has been if you like rediscovered in the capital and there have been riots in 1886 in Clubland and the West End of the unemployed and Bloody Sunday becomes also a a, a crucial moment over public space, over Trafalgar Square and the right to demonstrate. Many of these radical and socialist groups want to uh, have the right to go to Trafalgar Square and make their pitch, and uh, in a way that's very contemporary, because our own society has this problem today as well, Uh, law and order dictates a rather different kind of approach, and there's great concern that the radicalism might get out of control.
0: Can we go from that to the Bryant and May, the Match Girls uh, uh, strike in 1888, the Match Girls, about 1,400 of them in bow in a, f- a factory run, sadly, as it turns out, by Quakers, sadly, because we get, I mean, they're such, anyway, they, they run the Bryant and May, these girls by the age of 15, they, they're getting fossey jaw, which is a terrible, uh, incurable disease, their wages are dreadful, there. and there's a strike. Uh, they go, they decide to strike, and they call her in to help them, and she becomes associated with our to Rush, but we've got a lot to get through. What was its significance, and what was her significance in the strike?
3: Her significance was to link it to the wider public realm, because she has journalist friends. W.T. Steed, for instance, can put it on the front page of the Pall Mall Gazette, and... Th- she's able to publicize the strike and that brings pressure to bear on the Bryant and May factory who concede some of the demands of of the girls in particular not docking their pay for um small misdemeanor's or small petty issues like arriving a few seconds late for work so um in that sense annie besant is able to publicize the strike she's able to give it a public face and she, she writes about it white she slavery she writes about yeah. it what is she describes it as white slavery and it's the first unorganised workers' strike that that comes to prominence that uh, is successful. So in that sense, it, it has a, a defining moment in the in the history of, of uh, workers' rights. And that's 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 the 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 outcome of Besson's uh, lobbying and also the network of people that she's able to mobilise around around the strike. Um, I think in the for the for the girls themselves, it can be overestimated. I mean, they they their phosphorus wasn't taken out of use until the early 20th century so the fossil jaw remains um, and th- their wages didn't actually increase so it was in terms of the actual concessions that were made they were they were minimal but the point was that unorganized labor could uh, collectively uh, act and they were young women they were just able to um to to win that that cause
0: Arguably one of the solid things she did was when she was elected to the London School Board but uh, and, and did a, a lot in that, because she's right in the thick of things now, isn't she, in London? She's a big figure, she's active, she's working, she's got allies all over the place. But, David Sack, in the end of the 1880s her most radical change is she became very interested in theosophy and she seems to make an about turn on most other things because of this attraction to theosophy can you tell us what it was and why why she embraced it so firmly?
2: Well, in Besant's own terms, she, she doesn't make an about turn. She sees it as the culmination of her life and her various Well, she, she doesn't know if I may
0: say something. I she repudiates the birth control, she says, because Theosophy says that reincarn- you can't have reincarnation and birth control. So that's one of the she, big well, she, she She, she,
2: with, you know, she withdraws with the pamphlet, mm. um, The Law of Population 1891, the recommendation of Madame Blavatsky, But her whole autobiography, published two years later, is... A, an attempt to show how her life has been a journey towards theosophy and how each of the beliefs she's held before that have represented staging posts in that movement. Theosophy itself um, is derived from t- the two Greek words, theos and sophia, and means divine wisdom. The theosophical society that Besant joins has been formed in 1875 in New York by Madame Blatavasky and Colonel Olcott. But its roots, I suppose, or its, its spirit in every sense, is, is Eastern religion. Theosophy is the belief that there is a brotherhood known as the White Lodge or the hierarchy of adepts which watch over the evolution of humanity and that these adepts have evolved to a higher level and achieved power over nature so that they can appear as apparitions, they can make writing appear on pieces of paper locked in in the study drawers of Victorian men and women. Um, it's all wrapped up in elements of Buddhism, with notions of karma, reincarnation, and the idea that the universe exists on multiple planes, physical, mental, astral, and nirvanic. And so it's a marrying of Western esoteric tradition with various elements of Eastern religion.
0: But she embraced it very uh, fiercely, Yasmin Khan, uh, and she moved to India, where which it was its sort of, what you call its sort of epicentre, was in India in... Eighteen ninety-three, about halfway through her life, and was more associated with India from then on.
3: Absolutely, she.
0: I still can't quite see why, having been so, why she I, I, she did move out of the country. Maybe she did turn her back on things, but she did move out of the country. Why she was so entranced by it?
3: I think it's consistent with Annie Besant's constant questing towards a a universal answer to the condition of human life and the the, her need to find a transcendent way of understanding human suffering and I think that that is actually consistent with her searches in Christianity and then in atheism and I think Theosophy for her answers some of the bigger problems the root causes of human suffering and does it in a way that doesn't mean that she has to exclude any other group and she can all people can be part of theosophy all different religions are equal, equal within theosophy and so in that sense i think it has a very strong appeal to her india also has an appeal because it's the place that she can build a new base by by 1891 Bradlow has 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 passed away madame blavatsky her her mentor in the theosophical movement has died and annie besant it's a logical next step for her to go to India. She's already been interested in India and the theosophists in London had already been connected to Indian students. For instance, um, Gandhi, as a young student, had already met Besant and had been on the fringes of the Theosophical Society in London. So there there were connections between London and India established already. And she goes in in 1893 and she doesn't really uh, come back, uh, although she does visit and come back for the hot summers. sensibly. She, She... Stays in, in, in India and builds her base there in, in Benares, in the, in the holy Hindu city of, of Benares, and initially works in educational movements and in cultural movements and doesn't really step into frontline politics again for, for until the First World War. Um, but in that educational movement, what she's concerned with doing is revitalizing um, Hinduism and in championing cultural causes. So she sets up a school. In Benares, uh, which is about reviving Sanskrit education, she learns Sanskrit and she uh, carries out translations. and it, it, It's involved in cultural and educational activities.
0: In that sense, of course, Davis tack was right, and I was wrong to 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 go too far in that. That she did, she was doing with that school in Benares what she'd been doing in London with the London School Board was to get children into into school. And she was doing in India what she'd done from near the beginning of her life, she saw India as another island and uh, worked for Indian independence. And even in the First World War, you know, she was... um, uh, England's need is India's opportunity Mm -hmm. go against them and was uh, imprisoned, interred for a while there. So she took her political views to India. Um, Can you just tell us a bit more about India, Lawrence?
1: Well... um There, you know, there are a group of theosophists who come together. She's not alone in any way. Um, And they've come from different places, Australia, uh, America. Um, They form a kind of a base, uh, an estate that they take at Adyar, outside Madras. And that becomes the Theosophist's kind of um, a kind of heartland there. And they're engaged not only in their own self-questing for spiritual uh, sustenance, but of course in good works as well locally uh, in India. And then uh, comes a, a sort of crucial moment in Besant's life when um, a, a young boy uh, is, uh, as it were, located um, and is... It's decided almost by the movement uh, that this boy, who's nine years old when he's 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 first kind of uh, discovered and found, um, this boy, whose name is Jiddu Krishnamurti, uh, he will be the world teacher. He will spread the message of the theosophists. He will go out uh, almost prophet-like um, and be one of the great figures, as it were, uh, to link together all the cultures in peace and harmony. And Krishnamurti becomes um, uh, central to her. She becomes his legal guardian. She becomes the legal guardian to him and his brother. Uh, she comes back to England with him and she tries to educate him uh, in a Western way. He goes to Paris, he learns French. He's, as it were, set up to be the great prophet of of the movement.
0: But apart from that, and that doesn't end well because he declines to be the great prophet. Yeah, indeed. Rather <laughs> um Um, David Sack she gets involved in politics she goes round as I understand making great speeches and she ends up uh, as the first woman president of the uh, Indian National Congress so she's out there in the field uh, working away. there can you give us some uh, colouring to that Um, I think probably Lawrence is well I'm going to to
1: turn to Yasmin the Indian historian as long (laughs) as we don't keep passing it around the (laughs) (laughs) table
0: as long as the parcel doesn't reach
1: me that's fine
3: (laughs) I think it, Annie Besant is fair to say during the First World War becomes one of the most prominent in, uh, Indian independence leaders or Indian Home Rule league, leaders, and uh, for a time uh, is is at the forefront of campaigns for Home Rule from Indian uh, from from imperial control in India. She sets up. Home rule leagues, and what's interesting, she uses lots of techniques that she's used in Victorian London and applies them in India. So you have these speaker tours, the lecture tours, the pamphleteering, the journalism, and the reading groups. And she um, mobilises a lot of educated young, um, often Brahmin men boys, to uh, come into this home rule movement, which is uh, takes the government somewhat by surprise. Government in India is in a vulnerable position in the first world war they're sending soldiers across to Gallipoli and into the into the western front and um this mass movement is peaceful and they don't quite know what to do because it it's constitutional and so she is very cleverly positioning herself as a as a as a mass political leader in india and and takes up that mantle and is elected president of the Indian National Congress in nineteen seventeen um the, the which is which is a the high point in her Indian political career and really opens the door for Gandhi to come along a couple of years later and and um, take take forward that, that movement. So she's she's a pivotal person in, in the um, transformation of the Indian National Congress from a gentlemen's club to a mass movement that involves um, ordinary Indians on the street, if you like.
0: Briskly, I'm afraid, uh, uh, what what how would you place her? What influence did you have, Davis?
3: Um,
2: she uh, She wasn't a particularly original intellectual in her writings. She was dutiful, committed and fanatical about the various causes she embraced. She's also, I think, we need to remember, ineffably Victorian, particularly in her religiosity, and I'd include in her religiosity her atheism. It's very tempting to go for psychological explanations of Besant to say that there was this martyrdom, Complex, this desire to, to follow charismatic leaders, usually male, or who she met over time. But I think we ought to understand her within the context of Victorian society. In her autobiography, she talks about her life being an average one, which on one level is absurd, mm. but equally the causes she becomes involved with, secularism, the crisis of faith, birth control, socialism and spiritualism, these are some of the defining intellectual movements of the ni- late 19th century. And mm. so we can use her as a means to understand that period, I think. And then there's India. Thank you very much, David Stack, Blondes Goldman and Yasmin Khan.
0: Next week we'll be talking about Al-Kindi in 9th century Baghdad, known as the philosopher of the Arabs. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this BBC podcast, why not try others such as The Forum, the discussion programme about global ideas. To find out more, visit bbcworldservice.com slash forum.